This episode of the Stuyvesant Podcast is sponsored by Crimson Education. Are you a Stuyvesant student or parent who aspires to stand out in high school and study at top universities? Do you want access to the best mentors, strategists, and admissions experts to help forge your path to your dream university? With Crimson Education, you get strategic admissions support, essay guidance and editing, and leadership mentoring to help you discover your passions, to develop lifelong skills and build a strong high school profile. Crimson students are three times as more likely to get into their dream schools than those applying alone. Crimson gives you the best resources and technology-driven tools to guide your dream university acceptance. Visit crimsoneducation.org or watch one of their videos at youtube.com slash crimsoneducation. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Stavson Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan. We've got... Shayon. Alan. And uh, today, we're with BSL and Espera, and we've got Melissa, Sarai, and Selena. Guys, want to introduce yourselves? Uh, hi, I'm Sarai. I'm a junior, or I guess a senior now at Stuyvesant. Um, I'm vice president of Hespita, and I'm vice president of the Black Students League. Um, I'm really excited to be here, and... Um, other things I do, I do debate, um, and I love to read. Uh, I'm Melissa. I'm a rising senior, like Sarai. I'm vice president of Aspira, um, and I also am in clubs like soccer, and I do sing. I don't really know, <laughs> but I'm excited to be here. Uh, hi, I'm Felina. I am a rising senior, too. I'm was co-president of BSL this year. Some things I do, uh, I guess I do sing too, <laughs> love step, and I am a fake cook, <laughs> let's put it that way. I'm a fake cook too, so that's great. Um, anyways, uh, as the Black Students Lead and, and uh, Spira, what do you guys like do for people who don't really know? Yeah, I can, I can speak to that. We do a lot of really fun uh, cultural events, so we have the Hispanic uh, Month Dinner, which happens earlier in the year. We also have a Black History Month dinner. Um, but within our own organizations, we also do a lot of um, educational work. So we are usually, during the spring, we go to a bunch of college tours together as a group, which is really fun. Um, we also host a lot of events around Stuyvesant, like our talk circles around race initiative that we led this year um, has been particularly uh, successful. Um, yeah, we have a lot of fun. Yeah, I feel like Sarai hit everything, but basically, yeah, we do like lead the talk circles around race, which have gotten like a lot more attention this year. And like she said, the events that we have, basically, yeah. Yeah, so I'm not sure if you guys would know, but can you like run us through like the history of the Spear MBSL? Um, just has it been around like throughout Stuy's history? Because um, I think a lot of people just don't know anything about that. I don't know if you were either. I mean, I don't know the exact year it started, but uh, I don't think it's been around throughout all of Sai history. But uh, back when there was like a lot more people, I know it was like a bigger club. Then as it got like smaller, I think the SL and Spear merged only like a few years ago. And yeah. That's yeah so did it like completely die down in between? Not necessarily. Like, um... So I was talking with some alum like earlier today and there was just a bigger like black and Latinx population at Stuy. And then as like the years progressed, um, 
the less students they had, like they had uh, a sphere and BSL had to integrate their clubs just because of like maybe funding issues or just there wasn't as much attendance as there could be. And that's actually gotten a lot better this year. So we're really happy about that. Um, and your faculty advisor is Mr. Colon, right? Yes. Cool. Oh, you guys have been like doing a lot of work like in the past, in that, like the years I've come, I've been in Sky. Like, uh, I remember like a year or two ago, like you guys were basically the leading voices in the community that stopped. It used to be N-word. And like, from what I saw, it did help a lot of people realize that what they were doing wrong and to stop um, using the N-word basically. But I mean, it's still a pretty big problem in Sky because uh, if you remember something like, it was like the expose group uh, black and brown at Sky that happened recently and like yeah there's still a lot of cases at the n-word but i just wanted to ask um like what else as a community inside do you think we could like work on personally i don't feel like well the n-word is a really big issue around size especially like given that size population is like mainly east asian and white but there are also just like racist things that people are saying like the n-word isn't wasn't the most prevalent thing, even in the Twitter thread, black and brown exit spy. There are just a lot of personal experience and like microaggressions that people face that should also be dealt with, but I feel like are relatively overshadowed with us trying to co- combat like the um, people like saying the end. Have you guys like personally ever encountered any of that kind of stuff or like tell us some stories over that time? Yeah, people say a lot of racist stuff at the school. Um, usually they don't like to say it to your face, especially if they know that you're going to say something back. Um, mm-hmm. At least that's been my experience. But um, I've been called a monkey before to my face. I've heard all... Yeah, yeah. You would not believe the things that happen here. Um, but I think that what matters most or like what's changing is the culture of acceptance of the sort of behavior And I think that what's been most productive, um, or at least what I would say has been most productive, has been the fact that SPWSL has focused a lot on changing the culture of complacency that Stuyvesant has. Because not everyone at Stuyvesant is racist, but I think that a lot of Stuyvesant people are silent. And that lets the issue ferment. Yeah. So I think for a lot of people at Stuyvesant, like when it comes to, I guess, racial slurs and things of the nature... They, you know, their excuse is like, oh, like, you know, I didn't mean anything by saying it. I, I say it because people around me say it. Um, like, how do you how do you respond to that? And how do you explain to them that, like, they're also, you know, not justified? They're still doing something wrong. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of people justify themselves through that. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, my friend, right? Um, I actually, I was talking about this podcast to him. And I sent it to Alan and John. And, like, he responded with, like, wow, that's crazy. And then he still used an N-word right after I told him that it's with BSL and Aspira, right? Because, and I don't think that he's inherently racist, but, like, I think it's just, like, a product of, like, where he came up from. And, like, there's just, like, this weird kind of, like, strange acceptance around it, around using it, even though they're not supposed to, you know? I think it's a hard question because I think anyone can say whenever they're held accountable for a word that they've said that they didn't know. Um, but I would also say that we go to Stuyvesant and supposedly we're surrounded by some of the smartest students in the city. 
Um, I think that a lot of kids are coming from neighborhoods where the word is really pervasive and maybe they have a lot of black friends who say it all the time or a lot of brown friends who say it all the time. But when you come to Stuyvesant and one of the first um, discussions that you start to have, at least in recent years, has to do with privilege and like going to Stuyvesant and what racism is, especially I think that most or a lot of English classes have started taking up that discussion during freshman year. I don't know if there's a really valid excuse for saying that you don't know that it's a hurtful word and that it's inappropriate. I think that a lot of people, what they really mean to say is, well, I didn't really care until XYZ thing happened. And now, now I think it's inappropriate, um, which holds them accountable for a lot more of what they've done um, and said, and I think is closer to the truth. By the way, Veronica has entered. Sorry, back to Belina. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to add on to what Sarai said. Like, uh, maybe there was that element of people aren't trying to be outrightly racist, but there is that, like, that danger of falling into that I didn't know or, like, I really didn't... Like, like she said, it's basically, like, I didn't care enough. Because there are people who are telling them, and, I mean, someone has heard it at least one time, that it's not, like, a word you should be saying. And I feel like that's just... Like, to use that excuse that, like, you grew up in a place where it's used a lot. Like there's tons of words where maybe you could have heard a lot and you're not supposed to say it. And it's kind of like something you should know. Yeah. Um, I saw that. I think one of the things that the big cities are trying to do was like uh, sensitivity education um, come camp style. Um, do you guys know anything about that? Cause I, I, I don't, but um, I feel like that's like a good, uh, I guess, start to um this whole idea of like educating people on these issues that they just kind of have left in the dark for a long time um spwsl has been pushing for that for a long time um i don't know if any of you are familiar with a letter like the list of demands that bsl put out last year after the um blackface incident happened but mm, one of right. the demands yeah one of the demands that we wrote on that list was to center race in discussions with some of the leaders around schools, means SU, Arista, and Big Sibs. Um, and we gave a presentation on sensitivity surrounding race issues last year. And I don't know if that happened beforehand, um, but th- it did happen this year too. It wasn't at Camp Sty. It was before that. Um, we hosted it in front of the Big Sibs exclusively. And the idea was to ingrain in people's minds, not that it was sensitivity training, because it's not. Um, it was this is your responsibility as a big sib and your responsibility as a big sib includes your POC by POC, like black and Latinx and indigenous POC big sib, uh, little sibs as well. Yeah. I mean, after that incident last year, like a lot of discussion has popped up. Uh, I remember when uh, like immediately after the incident, I think after the list of the men's went out, uh, English teachers started talking about it immensely. I think, Sean was in my uh, friend's class as well. I think uh, it was a discussion that popped up junior year, and it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was a good wake up call for a lot of people, I think. And I mean, it it was just a productive thing that happened within our community. What exactly like is sensitivity training? Well, sensitivity training in general is like just like educating how to like interact with other people in the workplace and stuff. But I think like. The rise point was that it was it was less of that and just more like um like understanding that you have people 
of different backgrounds coming. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah. I don't. I don't want to like uh, put words. Yeah, in it's now. all good. I can clarify. Um, so the reason why I don't, I mean, and maybe Melissa, Felina, and Veronica have different perspectives on this. I don't like the term sensitivity training because it implies that there's something different about what it is that we're saying you have to do for these specific little sips. And that's not the idea. So the point of um, the presentation that we gave was to say, you are a role model in this community. And that means that you cannot tolerate racism. You cannot stay silent when racism happens. You need to be conscious that some of your little sips here are going to experience racism to a different degree, degree than others. And as their big sib, you should respond appropriately to that. But the idea is to ingrain in the minds of big sibs that it is not different to take care of a black little sib or a Latinx little sib. Right. It's your duty to do so equally the way you would do unto any other one. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of um, kids entering high school um, from like their local middle school, whatever, um, you know, I, a lot of people say like size is like bubble. I feel like that the same holds true for um, a lot of middle schools, uh, you know, far out in Queens or like wherever else um, that just like either through like lack of diversity or just because you're like in the same neighborhood, you're basically your entire life. You never really, I guess, get to know how to properly conduct yourself, yourself respectfully. Um, with people of different cultural backgrounds, um, religious backgrounds, et cetera. Um, so I feel like, you know, I feel like there's this weird, hard transition um, in society where people inevitably, inevitably make these mistakes. And like, not that that's like any reason of justification, right? But I also think that like, um, you know, aside from big sibs, I feel like there are classes uh, I know the English department has been moving towards, you know, more discussions around race and whatnot, but I feel like classes like, I don't know, government and things like that should be put, I guess, closer to freshman year than, I guess, say, taking it in senior year. I don't know what you guys think about that. I, I just feel like... if I think there also needs to be like an upheaval of what they teach in government too, you know? Yeah, because like they teach like a lot of what government teaches you is useful, but a lot like a lot of it is just like useless facts that you would just don't need. That's true, right? But so like I feel like if you could just like rearrange that and also include like more. Yeah, I don't know. Is, like is you could educate more about like how like racism has it gets seeped because, into the state, you know? Yeah, because like because um like if you think about it, like. European history is like a whole year-long course. Uh, I forgot who made this point, but it's like, I don't know, that's kind of weird like to have like that replace like a whole year of like world history. Um, I don't know, I guess that says something else about like where our priorities are and aren't. For, let's take Juneteenth for an example, right? I feel like a lot of people have been learning about that for the first time this year. Um, I only found out about that in a push last year um, with Mr. Sandler. Well, Veronica and I are kind of trying to do something about that, but specifically in the English department, um, we're kind of moving towards including more Hispanic or Latinx literature in classes. Um, 
especially like, as you said, if you can devote an entire year to European literature, um, why not be more inclusive? Yeah, or history too, for that matter. Exactly. And it's like, it feels, it like alienates any like POC students when you read your first um, first book by a Hispanic author in junior year and then never know how to talk about the culture surrounding that book. So um, I definitely think that needs to be changed. How are you going about it? We've made a list of um, books, poems, short stories, and we've gotten the approval from Ingram and Pedrick. So now I think we're going to put it through Contreras. And if he approves, um, we're going to start talking to Grossman about reevaluating um, literature classes. Is this a separate course you're talking about? Or are you just trying to implement more like literature from these authors into the regular class? Uh, not a separate course. We're just gotcha. trying to... I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of ways you could change how uh, style really functions in a way and make it better. Uh, but... I think the main thing is that no one really teaches you how to be a good person, you know, when like even in style, like no one really teaches you how to be like a respectful person, how to be a good person. But, uh, the, like, you know, you've mentioned, you guys mentioned can't die and, uh, a bunch of, I guess, meetings and stuff like that, that we could like integrate more into when, when people first make the transition to style, the fully, I guess, be better people. I mean, it's not, it's not something that's really told to people inside because that's not really kind of expected of you. But if we do want to live in a better society, we do kind of have to, you know, integrate it in a way. I think that's a, that's a funny, funny thing to say, because I was just discussing with my friend the other day, the importance of understanding the difference between a political issue and a moral issue. And I think that a lot of Stuyvesant students do not understand the difference, especially when it comes to race relations. Because, like, not saying the N-word, not calling other students racial slurs, not comparing celebrities to um, specific animals, that, that has nothing to do with political alignments. That, that has a lot more to do with respect and the way you conduct yourself. And I, I mean, I obviously don't think that Stuyvesant is going to start a philosophy class freshman year. But I do wonder, um, and I say this because I do debate, and the part of debate that I do is really, really focused around philosophy. And a lot of the people that I know who've done this type of debate have told me that what they've learned has a lot to do with the literature that they've read that concerns like what normative theory is and when it's okay to do something and when it's not okay to do something. And it's funny to think that maybe had people had the opportunity to learn more about philosophy and morality and what it means to be good, um, whether they'd be more open to understanding um, concepts about race relations and social norms and what's okay and what's not okay. The closest thing that STI kind of has to that is like the guidance push-ins freshman year. And right now, there's a lot of guidance push-ins that aren't really the most relevant. And a lot of the time, I remember my freshman year, my guidance push-in would just be like a study period, basically. And I think if we used uh, those periods better, we could talk sort of like what Sarai is suggesting. Like, well, it's, while it's not a full course, it would be beneficial to the students uh, when they're first sort of getting used to Stuyvesant to get these pointers on how to act that they might not 
have seen in their middle schools, like social norms and sort of how to act at sty and be respectful and make good future citizens and students at sty. I mean, going back to what Sarai said about um, the difference between a political and a moral issue, uh, I guess this kind of relates to, I mean, what's been happening in, around the world right now, I mean, especially in America. And a lot of people have been staying, there's been a lot of discussion on staying silent and being a bystander and claiming that they'd rather not involve themselves in politics. And I think that's a, I think it's a, it's a topic that really relates to this because um, there's been a lot of claims that if you don't speak out, you're hurting the movement more. And there's also been a lot of claims that people just don't want to be a part of the movement because they're scared of uh, people speaking out against them. And it's become this huge topic. And I mean, where do you guys stand on that? Because um, for people who don't, I guess, involve themselves within politics, I think personally, I think this has become more of a moral issue, but I mean, that's just my opinion. And like, yeah, you guys can speak on that. What people don't understand is that you are taking an action when you decide to not say something. And whether or not that action is worse than doing something, quote unquote, actively racist is up for debate. But I do think that being complacent and staying silent when something, when an injustice is going on, is to do wrong by the, by the side of people who need the help. And the scenario that I would pose or that I like to bring up, especially when I have this conversation with my non-Black, non um, Latinx or just my non POC friends, like my white friends, I mean, is, well, how do you think that the black person or the Latinx person in that scenario feels? Do you think that they have the choice to either stay silent and be disrespected or to say something and put themselves at risk? Because I assure you that nobody wants to be um, vulnerable. Nobody wants to put up a fight. I certainly don't like to be conflictive, which seems to surprise people when I say that, but I don't. Um, but when someone like actively hurts me or threatens me, then of course I'm going to feel the urge to say something about that. And even though you are not in a position where you are made vulnerable, where you are attacked or hurt, there is someone else that has been, and they don't have the privilege to make that decision the same way you do. I'm kind of scared though. Like some people are going to be scared, uh, tired of being vulnerable. You know, how do you keep people's attention for longer and longer and longer? You know, it's like I feel like it's going to get harder and harder as time keeps going. You know. I don't know what you mean. Like, what can we do to keep preventing it? Like, how do we how do we prevent the movement from fading or dying out? Well, well the, I mean, it's just like, it's as simple as, I mean, I don't know what you said to your friend when he said the N-word um, when you texted them, but what you should have done was, hey, hey that's not cool. <laughs> um, I don't condone that. It's as simple as integrating basic anti-racist practices into your daily life and making sure that you do not put that burden onto the Black or Latinx person next to you. Got it. As for things that we've been seeing online, you know, like, is, is there a line between, like, quote-unquote, like, performative activism um, and, like, actual activism, like, going to protests and stuff? But, like, does it even matter, right? Because, like, in one way or another, it's getting the message across um, whether or not the person actually believes in it. But I, I see that what I feel like is happening a lot of the time is that, like, you know, someone posts something, but all of their followers are, you know, generally on the same page as them. So I feel like it becomes something where it just, it, 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 it's like... Um, An echo chamber? Yeah, exactly. So... Well, in my, like, opinion, I think 
Well, it's good that people are spreading awareness about this movement, especially if they know they have friends that disagree with them. But what they should be doing, like it, it doesn't matter if you're posting a, a story to your Instagram, if you're not signing petitions, if you're not trying to donate. And like there are even ways to donate without like, even if you don't have money, you can donate by watching videos right. that donate the money they make. So I think it's just, it's being relatively lazy, kind of just posting a story and thinking that's it, you're done. Like it never ends there. I saw this really, really good photo and I don't know where it is because I don't have Instagram right now. Um, but it was basically a diagram that shows like the scale of um, white supremacy versus activism. Melissa, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, so it's the series of circles that shows an overlap between like the woke black kids and like the semi-woke white kids and then like the I don't participate in politics kids and then like the hardcore white supremacists. And the idea is that, sure, maybe one person posting something doesn't make a super big difference. But if tons of people start posting and then someone who is maybe less inclined to participate in activism sees that and feels pressure to do so, then somehow the message continues to disseminate into circles where that idea isn't common and it isn't pervasive. And these stances like Black Lives Matter that, believe it or not, are fairly controversial still to a lot of people get translated to communities that beforehand would not have seen it. And obviously a white supremacist seeing an Instagram post is not going to decide to not be racist. But the idea that this idea can be translated across all sorts of communities does matter. And I also wanted to say that I 100% agree with Melissa. Posting on Instagram is the least you, you can do. You do not post on Instagram and then stop. However, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that taking a stance that is controversial, like Black Lives Matter, that unfortunately is still controversial, does matter and it does have an impact, I, I would say. And at least insofar as it makes a statement as to your um, moral alignment. Um, and the other thing that I would say is I am far more concerned with the practices that you take every day with your Black friends, for example, or your racist friends who you don't check than I am as to whether or not you post it on Instagram. And I've received a lot of messages from people who told me that they're so sorry for being complacent and how they care so much about me and like the way that the school or how the world treats Black and Latinx people. And then a week later, I have a problem where someone lets racism happen again and they just lie to my face about whether or not they're okay with it. Um, I think it matters a lot that we take action and that can take lots of different forms. Kind of like what Soraya and Melissa said, that for, I know for a lot of people, maybe that post is like their starting point because everybody has to start somewhere. And it's not necessarily a bad thing that you're posting or saying things, but like Melissa stressed, it's important that that's not the only thing you're doing. That you're, And if it is the only thing you're doing, to kind of like take a moment and stop and be like, okay, why am I posting this? Why am I doing this? Am I going to take it further? And if not, then that's like a conversation you kind of have to have with yourself and think about it. And what I do like about the posts is that throughout this whole experience, I've learned so many things about like history that I'd never known about like current legislations that I never, I never would have heard of without this like sudden influx of people posting and sharing posts all the time. <clears throat> and so while it might not always be 
super helpful towards a direct, like, while it's not going to be as helpful as a donation, I do appreciate people sharing things that help me educate myself. So that's what I think whenever I post something, but obviously you do need to do more than that. You do need to sign the petitions and everything like everybody's been saying. Yes. Yeah. I think it's really important to like, yeah, like, like y'all have already said, I think it's really important to notice that uh, posting on social media. Yeah. It's, it's a, um, it's a big first step, but it's really important to like, not forget that, Hey, there's still a lot more you can do and there's still so much more that is like can be done and that you can affect because it's like um it's like changing things before you want to change things on like a larger scale you gotta if you really care about it you gotta change everything well to change the most you can on like a local level it's similar to climate change you know um like before you can change i don't know like national law you gotta you gotta do what you can in your own community right it's like you gotta stop using plastic bags. Yeah, you gotta stop using plastic bags. Uh, save like stop using the air conditioner as often. You know, it's it's a similar type of thing. These are movements, and you know, um, stopping your friends from saying the n word and stopping yourself from saying the n word and other derogatory terms is important because before you could change everything on a national level and having big ideas, you gotta target yourself. I guess within your own community and with like within yourself as well. Yeah. I think like this wave of activism has been like the most successful that I've ever seen because like my, like I'll tell you, like in my own family, like my parents aren't the most progressive, you know, I'm an immigrant. You know, it's just the way it is. They're just raised in a different place. But like, like talking to them about the George Floyd thing, like you can definitely, you can definitely see that there's like a change in attitude that's sudden. Because they just see that and then they go like, well, I, well, I've done that before. Nobody should ever have to die for such a crime so petty. You know what I mean? And yeah, I think I really like that part of the movement. Like it's, there's a lot of people who you might not hear from specifically, but like still working on them too. Speaking about George Floyd, uh, it's been nearly a month. I think it's almost, I think it's three days until it's a month, a full month, but it's been nearly a month since the killing of George Floyd and movement's still going on. People are still protesting. People are still speaking out. Stuff is still going on on social media. Uh, oh, but uh, maybe Alan's already asked this before, but um, like what can, I guess, what do we do to like keep the movement from fading out and like uh, keeping, you know, keep speaking out in a way. And yeah, I mean, prevent this from just dying out. That's a hard question. Um, and I don't know what Felina, Melissa, and Veronica have to say, but what has been concerning me the most has been, because we're all like 17, 18 year old. Yeah. Like, I, I assume that you're all that age and I assume yeah. you're talking about <laughs> our friends. <laughs> are that age. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Alan, you're old, but yeah, exactly. Um, my point is though, I think that on a local level, what people need to start doing is understanding that when you decide that you no longer condone racism, because it is a decision that some people still have to make, you need to stick by that 24-7. And that means not keeping around racist friends. That means not condoning racism from your parents or your cousins or whoever it is that you go to get your hair cut. Like you, can, you must choose that decision actively again and again. 
And I think that's much more moving to me than posting something on Instagram because it's an action that changes, actively changes culture and it changes the way that people feel comfortable acting. Because I guarantee you that once someone starts losing friends over the fact that they say the N-word or say much, much worse things, they're going to stop. And maybe that's not the right reason, obviously, because we want people to understand that racism is bad for a variety of, um, of factors, but it's still something and it might make the life of some random black kid much easier later on. You know what I mean? Um, people need to understand that they hold a lot more power than they think and their silence is a, a use of that power that negatively hurts others. Yeah, I'll also say this. I think that like on a larger national level, um, we have like higher expectations for police departments um, and, you know, just like their actions and how liable they are to what they do. Um, and I think, I, I, I don't know, I think it's a good thing. So I feel like that's something that's come out of these protests and it's something that I think is sticking around, um, which is definitely good. Yeah, I was just going to say the biggest thing is the best way I'd say to keep the movement alive is to look at yourself and to look at the things you've been doing before that maybe you didn't even think were racist or were wrong, but then try to change those and try to like, try to get your friends or your family to kind of see that and change that and make sure that that's like something permanent that you're like actively choosing for the rest of like forever that you're going to change. I mean, um, speaking on that, like something I saw recently circling on uh, social media was uh, like around last week, I think, was uh, the implicit bias test. Um, and I think implicit bias is like a really important thing to talk about. Like, uh, because I guess whether or not people believe they're racist, uh, implicit bias kind of largely exists in like every single person because it's subconscious. It's really about implicit bias is kind of like how you were raised and like the people you like grew up around. And yeah, like, if you kind of don't have implicit bias, you, you're like a very rare case. But like, it's something that like people implicit bias, like whether or not like you have it or not, you you should recognize um, you should recognize if it's in you, I guess. Right? You know, like you should recognize any biases you have and work on it. Because if if you're implicitly biased and you act upon your instincts in a way, like it could, you know, it it's it's not good it's it's blatantly racist it's blatantly targeting against uh i guess against certain groups and you know i guess it's important for people to realize that hey you gotta work on yourselves in a way and uh if you work on changing yourself you can work on changing other people and yeah so i'm not gonna lie i haven't been to a protest right because of my grandmother she has pre-existing conditions and I don't want to put her to that risk um so I wanted to donate and I was looking around and I saw like some sketchy stuff recently around social media around like Sean King then like the Minnesota like bail fund not using like a lot of their 35 million dollars that they had so I was just wondering like are there other ways that we can contribute financially so we can like make sure that our dollars make a difference. I mean, the one thing I would say is that there's like a bunch of organizations that were around like before all this happened that have been doing great work, like the Equal Justice Initiative and others that you could donate directly to if you really wanted to like help. And there's a 
sure you can find a lot of them. And I was just going to say, there's even local things that you can do. Like if you can't go to the protests, but you want to help uh, people um, that I know have been making like protest care packages for people who are out there protesting, you can give, um, you can bring masks, water, snacks. Um, you can, there's liquid antacid for tear gas, although that's sort of loosened up. Um, but there's always more local efforts that you can see your money going directly towards. That's a really interesting idea. Um, I, was, I was thinking a lot about how you guys were talking about changing the English uh, like curriculum a little bit to try your best to like include more Hispanic authors. And I was wondering, like, like are there any other institutions that are just inherently racist at Stuyvesant? And like SHSET was the first thing that came to mind. And I was just wondering if you guys wanted to elaborate on that. This this is a controversial opinion, but as far as I'm concerned, and I say this as a privileged Stuyvesant student, so um, I hope it's clear that my opinion is open to changing. But I don't think that the test itself is racist. Mm. Um, and I told my friend, I feel like I feel like Candace Owens when I say that in like um, other settings, like besides Stuyvesant, because a lot of people disagree with me. Um, I think that the question that we need to be asking ourselves has more to do with well, what do what do New York City public middle schools and lower schools look like, um, and are they mostly are they mostly one race or do they tend to be mixed? Like, what resources are available to different middle schools, and how many people actually know about this test? So, I um, I work with students at a middle school in Sunset Park, and part of the work that I do involves like talking to their parents. And I was at a parent teacher like conference night, like seven months ago. And um, for those of you that don't know me, my mom is from Spain, so I happen to speak Spanish, which means that I get to speak to a lot of parents that otherwise are not able to communicate extensively, um, at least not with only English speakers. So when I went there and I spoke to especially a lot of the Latinx families that were there at the um, parent-teacher night, and mind you, these are like seventh-grade parents, right? And some of them were eighth-grade parents. And I mentioned to them this idea of the SHSAT and Stuyvesant and whatnot. People said, what is that? People don't know that this test exists. And as far as I'm concerned, that's an injustice, If even if it's just one family. But it wasn't one family. It was a multitude of families who did not know what Stuyvesant was, what the SHSAT was, and what specialized high schools are. And I think that a lot of work needs to be done getting this information and test prep two different communities that otherwise would not have access through word of mouth. I mean, there aren't WeChats um, for random Latino or Latinx or Black families around the city. You know what I mean? Like, it is a different network of communication. And when specific families or neighborhoods are left out of the conversation or out of the information loop, well, then obviously so-and-so isn't going to take the test if they don't even know it exists. And it was so frustrating to me to speak with families who had ninth graders and were there for like a second grade or whatever, who were like, they could have gotten to, into a better school. Like th- this opportunity was available and I didn't know about it. Um, it it's an injustice. Uh, yeah. Going off that, I went to like a uh, majority black and Latinx Catholic school and we had like good high school prep, but like every like high school prep night was just talking about the Catholic schools. I didn't even know about Stuyvesant until like eighth grade because I had a family friend 
who I went to public school for one year with in first grade and her daughter, like we were tight with the parents and their daughter went to Bronx science. And I was like, Oh, like what's that? So I found out about this through like the furthest connection possible. And when I started like going through the application process for STI and like signing up for the SHSAT, my teachers were like, uh, I don't know if you should be doing this. I don't know if you're going to be able to survive at Stuyvesant. Like, I don't what know if it's the right environment. Hmm? What are they scared of? What are they scared of? Uh, they were just, and it, honestly, I'm not sure because I was the valedictorian. I was the highest in my class. Um, but they just genuinely thought I was going to like go there and kill myself. <laughs> I was the first student from my oh. school to go to Stuyvesant, like possibly ever. <laughs> It's just like that's not an option. <laughs> I mean, like when I in my middle school, like in eighth grade, um, my it wasn't a very big school. It was like ninety kids, but like it was that SSCT like was a big thing that um, a lot of teachers and guidance counselors in the school like kind of stressed upon. And like, in all honesty, before that grade, I didn't really even know what the SSCT was. I didn't know what Stuyvesant was. And like, if it wasn't for my school telling me at the time, I probably never would have like came here. And um, thing is, like, I could even uh, go back to freshman year when I was already in Sty, and I I played on this football team uh, that wasn't Sty yet. I, I hadn't played on Sty yet, and I just uh, I played on this separate team that was in Queens with this small like local team, and basically a bunch of feel uh, like people of color were on the team and uh, they asked me, Oh, where'd you go to school? Where do you like, where are you going? And I was, I replied Stuyvesant and they had no idea what Stuyvesant was. They had no idea what the SSSAT was. And some of these kids were super smart. And I was in my head, I was going, these kids could literally do better than me in this school. And in all honesty, like if they knew about it and they took the test, they probably could have gone to die. And it sucks that, uh, it's not us, um, well, that's just, the SHSAT not being talked about more in like more smaller, lower income communities is kind of, it's pretty messed up. And, and I do agree with the fact that SHSAT isn't like the, the, the test isn't racist in itself, but like the way that people are notified and like the system around it, I guess, is not, um, it's not really appealing to like people of color and like lower income communities yeah i think i kind of have a different point of view on this because i didn't go to the best middle school but that middle school knew a lot about the shsat um but i was uh the only girl in my eighth grade class to get into sci and then i heard from one of my little sibs that um like 30 kids from her grade got into sci with her and that was just a really big culture shock because like, even if like a certain middle school, maybe like widespread about the information about the SHSAT, that same middle school may not have the resources to prepare them even for an adequate high school education. So I think the problem not only comes with um, information about the SHSAT being spread out to middle school kids, but about the lack of resources that comes with lower uh, income neighborhoods. Yeah, I think this also goes into that entire conversation about, um, oh, I just lost my breath, um, defunding the police, right? So like take, 
from their budget, put it into education and um, other community-based uh, budgeting um, so that these problems are less pervasive, if you will. Is that the right word? Also, where'd you go to uh, middle school? Uh, 126. It's in Astoria. Yeah, I thought so. I went to 126 too. Wow. Look at that. The year I went, four people from 126 went to Stai. Four people from my grade also got into Stai. Isn't that crazy? Bad. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Do you guys know each other-ish? You know, I feel like we know the same people. I actually might come from middle school that, like, you said that was, like, 30 people coming through. Like, a lot of people came from my middle school. I think it was, like, 20 people. Yeah. I feel like, yeah. Um, that was my end. So, yeah. But, yeah, it's more of a, it's more of a, I guess, a problem within, like, our whole system and, like, the public school system. And it's, it's definitely something we could all work on. I mean, the government has to kind of work on. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll ask like one last, like, I guess, question that I've been thinking about. Um, I feel like 2020, given everything that's happened, coronavirus, the protest, George Floyd, um, I feel like it's like a huge turning point um, in history, uh, upcoming elections, that too. So like, I don't know, do you think, and there's no right or wrong answer. I just, I, just, I don't know, I'm just curious. <laughs> Do you think that, like, America can, like, move past, you know, it's, like, previous racism um, and just, like, general, like, I guess, mistreatment of certain groups of people? Uh, you know, I, I, on one hand, I feel like people are doing things uh, in terms of, like, educating themselves. And I think that's great, right? Like, a lot of people have been watching documentaries. I know that the school has been uh doing like not the school but like the student union bsl and whatever else whoever else has been doing like um like documentary screening that's been super awesome um but i feel like on a wider widespread level um people don't like to admit that they're wrong people don't like to change their views um i don't know I, I, like are we stuck yeah, I feel like there's a lot. Uh, it's hard to like <laughs> look into the future and say like, oh, we're going to get past this sometime. And like, how long is that going to take? I don't know. Uh, Percy, I mean, I think we can make progress. Like there's a lot that's been changing and that's a great thing. And I mean, I don't know. It's a lot. Cause like when you think about like even now, like the pushback that's been happening to Black Lives Matter and you would think it'd be like, just common sense or like at least some things like would just be agreed upon but even like those little things just aren't and there could be any number of reasons for that but like I just think there's still a lot that has to be done and like a long way to go sure but not that it can't necessarily be done no I feel the same way I feel like we're making incremental progress um but any progress is better than none all right I guess let's close it out Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stuyvesant Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to also follow Aspira and Black Students League on their social media platforms as well.